Good morning, church. Uh, this morning, I'd like to encourage you to open your Bible, if you would, right now, uh, to the book of Matthew, which uh, is the first book in the New Testament. For those of you who are new to these stories, and uh, this is Matthew chapter 4. I'd like to begin this sermon by reading uh, the first few verses of this chapter. It's a story that comes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And uh, before he begins that ministry, he enters into a time in the wilderness. And this is the scene uh, that unfolds here in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by, uh, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. You're the son of God, he said. Throw yourself down, for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Let us pray this morning. God, we ask, I ask in this moment, God, that you would send your spirit in a tangible, real way that would be felt, that we would sense your presence is among us, that we would long for more than words from a page or sermons or for songs that we sing, but we would long to experience you, God, deeply in our being, that we would know that you are real, that we would know that you're not done acting. God, this morning, in the midst of all the temptations that we face in our world, I pray that you would move in this room. I pray that you would move in our lives. I pray that your spirit would comfort and would do what is needed, God, to help us live the kind of life you want us to live. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Last week, if you weren't here with us, we began a a conversation leading up to uh, Palm Sunday about the death of Jesus, about our own mortality, about the inevitability of death in all of our lives short of Christ's coming uh, before our death. So it's a a nice, light subject that we're launching into as of last week and going forward. But I think it's an important conversation because if we're not a people who are secure and confident in what death brings to us in the afterlife, we won't live fully into the life that we have now. There's something that is good in counting our days aright so we might live uh, as people of wisdom in this age, this corrupt generation. And so today I want to continue this conversation. But last week, I preached to you from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And in those verses, it mentions a phrase that I don't remember growing up hearing much about. It was a phrase that says that we are in slavery to the fear of death. Not in slavery to death, because Jesus has defeated death. One day that's going to be a journey that's going to be defeated all together in the end, but, but today, in the midst of our lives today, we live with a fear of death. We live in a, with an unknown about what's ahead of us. So we talked about the slavery to the fear of death and how it impacts our lives and how 
Christ came to die on the cross to overcome death. But today I want to continue that conversation because as I woke up this morning, I didn't grow I didn't wake up with a with a sense that death was at my doorstep today. I figured I would wake up and I would return to my bed tonight and that life would go on as normal. We don't live with that kind of sense every single day that it, this could be the day because how would you live in the midst of that anxiety? Not knowing what's around the corner, living with a sense of fear about things. And so in Collin County, I don't think we live with this fear all that often. But there are places in the world where people do live with that fear on a regular basis, don't they? And years ago, we lived in a different situation. We lived with the marvels of medical science and all that's happened to uh, allow longevity to be something that has grown and grown over the last 200 years or so. It's amazing. It's over, basically, our our life expectancy has grown 100% over the last 150 years. I talked about that a few weeks ago. And what that does to us is it, it allows us to kind of put our death away from us, not have to think about it all that often until we come to later stages in our lives. But we have to remember that today there are people in this world that live uh, in in a sense that death could be right around the corner. There are people today that don't know if they're going to have enough food and their baby's bellies are are, are extended and and they don't know if this is going to be the day that malnourishment may take their kids. They don't know if it's going to be a disease or a plague uh, like has happened over the centuries that may take them. They don't know if it's going to be a a foreign army that might come in or terrorists who might end it for them in this day. They live with a real sense of that fear. And what psychologists call that fear is a basic anxiety. It's a sense that today could be the last day, that death could be right around the corner. And for centuries, people have lived with this basic anxiety about the world. But now that we live in this new era where we live in America, we don't think about that as often, that longevity is what it is. We don't live with basic anxiety as much as we live with a different kind of anxiety that that psychologists tell us about. It's not basic anxiety. It's neurotic anxiety is what they call it. And neurotic anxiety is the sense that maybe we don't measure up to all those who are around us. It's not the sense that we might not be here tomorrow. It's the sense that in the midst of that, we don't worry about that fear. We worry about measuring up to those who are around us. We worry about failure. We compare ourselves to others. And uh, there's a phrase that I want to talk a little bit about today about our fear of being ordinary that orients our lives so often. Arthur McGill is a a writer who's written about the American culture and about all the anxiety we face. And this is a quote from him I wanted to share this morning. He says, Americans like to appear as if they give death hardly any thought at all. The American culture is thus for people to create a living world where death seems abnormal and accidental. Americans must create a living world where life is so full, so secure, and so rich with possibilities that it gives no hint of death and deprivation. So we live in this kind of world where we put that away as much as we possibly can. We live life to the fullest, forgetting what's ahead. And I don't know about you, but that quote reminds me of life in Collin County. Does it do that to you? This search for life that's to the full, this search uh, for something that's going to provide meaning so that we can put away the anxiety that so many throughout the world uh, feel. How many of you are familiar with the uh, University of uh, Houston professor Brene Brown? Uh, have any of you read her books, Daring Greatly? And she has a, a recent book uh, that's come out that's it's great as well. She has a quote about this whole idea uh, that I think really gets at what I'm trying to communicate this morning. This is what she says. Do you know what we struggle with in America? We struggle with the shame-based fear of being ordinary. I don't know how that hits you or strikes you this morning, but I, the more I talk to people, the more I get a sense that many of us live with this fear, 
that we might die and we might be put into the ground and that people won't remember us once we're gone. Part of that anxiety that we want our lives to count for something. We want our, our, our grandkids to be able to remember us. And we want to do things while we're in the world so that we can make a mark and make a difference. And the question that lies for many of us, I think, is if we don't make a difference, then did our lives really count for anything? Maybe some of us feel this a little bit more than others, but I know I sense this. And if you look around Facebook very often, you may see that same anxiety at play. It looks a little different, right? But we want to show those parts of our lives that show that we're significant, to show that we're not ordinary like everyone else, that our family just happens to have no fights on the way to church, and we're dressed up just as we should be. You see, we put this world on display in places, and I think part of it is this desire to avoid the anxiety that comes with death. death. And in our culture, one of the primary ways that we find significance and we deny our deaths is through a quest to become heroic. Every culture defines heroism in different ways. Every profession defines what's heroic in different ways. Every person and individual defines this in different ways. And so if you're a college professor, for instance, there's a track of significance that can make you into a hero, at least as it comes to your profession. You do all you can to write that journal article that might go in the journal that you desire for it to, or you you try to get all those student evaluations back in such a way that it's all positive, which is impossible to do, right? And you try to get on that track that maybe at some point tenure is possible. See, there's a track of success in most of our lives in different ways that we live. Uh, for business people, there's its own uh, way. Or in your business, I'm sure, you've got a track of how this might work, that you'll grow, you'll be promoted, and then you'll be promoted again. And eventually, maybe you'll get to senior level, or maybe you'll have that stock option that'll be a part of your package. And then maybe you'll launch out and start your own company and be able to create a whole business that would be around how you would do things rather than what you've seen others do for parents. Isn't this true? We start out just excited about having kids, but then we want to see them succeed, don't we? We, we try to put them in all these activities, and we try to, to, to help them excel in every way possible. Good parents do these things, but sometimes our identity gets wrapped up in how they, well they do on the athletic field or the basketball court. Sometimes those grades, our frustration with them isn't so much about them as much as it is our own expectations and our own disappointment with our own lives. Think about your own life this morning. What is it for you that is this track to significance that you feel, man, I want to make a dent. I want to make a difference. I want to make sure that that dash between the dates on my tombstone actually meant something. It, it mattered to people who were around me. Some of us want to be remembered for something after we die. We want to know that our life matters. And part of what the midlife crisis is, I believe, is coming to grips with the fact that we have fewer years to make that difference. And maybe where we thought we would be, we haven't actually gotten to. So there's this whole thing that goes on in our lives where we're trying to measure the impact that we've made. And part of it is trying to deny the reality of what's ahead of us for every single one of us who live on planet Earth. So it's not wrong to want to make a difference. It's not wrong to make a dent. But when we use these to try to avoid our slavery to the fear of death, it's amazing the dysfunctions that can occur. But that's a conversation about psychology and sociology. So this morning I want to open up Scripture and I want to point to how I see Scripture talking about this very conversation as well. If you have your Bibles, open with me uh, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. It's a story we looked at last week, but I think it talks uh, and speaks to this conversation as well. So in Genesis chapter 1, God gives Abraham, I'm sorry, God gives Adam and Eve an identity. 
when he creates them, it's, it, he says some things over them that are significant for them. But I want to, as I read this this morning, I don't want you to hear this just as God's words spoken over Adam and Eve. I want you to hear them as God's words spoken over you as well. So this comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over all uh, the, the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so what is the identity that God gives to Adam and Eve? He says, you are created in my image. Every one of you, not just Adam and Eve, all of us who have been born into the world bear the image of God in our being. He stamped His his special identity on us. We are children of the King of the universe. You're a son who's a beloved son of God. You're a daughter who's a beloved daughter of God. So our identity starts in this place. We know who we are. We've been created by God. He loves us. We bear His image. And this is true for Adam and Eve. It's true for us. And so what's their identity? That's what it is. But what's their purpose on the earth? God gives them a purpose, a way to live. He says, you're to rule the earth. You're a co-ruler with me over all of creation to see it flourish in all the ways that it should. But as we move forward a, a chapter and a half, we come to chapter 3. We read these words last week, but I want you to see it in terms of identity and purpose and how the serpent makes uh, Adam and Eve question the identity that God's clearly given to them. This is Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the serpent doing in this story? The serpent is causing Eve to question God, causing her to question her identity. Because God said, here's what I'm giving you. All these trees are good. There's one you can't have. But what do we begin to think when someone tells us we can't have something? We begin to think that there's value out there that we wish we could hang on to, something we could find. Maybe our identity is not fully secure as it is. Maybe there's something more that could make me fully what I want to be. So the serpent begins to kind of poke at that sense we all have, right? Did God really say that? And if God said that, he's really just holding out on you is what he's doing. If there's more, if you would just do this, you'd be like God. He doesn't want you to be like him. So she begins to take the fruit and she's questioning her identity. She's questioning the sense that everything she needs is who she is created in the image of God. The serpent gets that well and does that to all of us, right? Whenever there's a temptation in our lives, I can almost guarantee you it's because something has caused us to think we're not fully who we need to be in our identity in Jesus. So we read on in verse 6 what happens. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So Eve takes the fruit, begins to eye the fruit, sees this promise that the serpent has shared with her, maybe you'll become like God if you take this. And she takes it all in in that moment. Have you ever been there in that moment? 
probably not a piece of fruit, but the sense that man, if, I, if I take this substance or if I engage in this activity, I know there's something more that I'm going to come into, more knowledge perhaps or more pleasure, whatever it is, I will be more fulfilled if I take this. And you can see her eyeing that fruit, wondering if there's something more that's needed. And with that background, I want to go back to the verses we read at the beginning of the sermon, Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles open there, we'll spend some time in those verses. See, in Matthew 4, Jesus is about to begin his ministry. But before he calls his disciples, he goes through a period of temptation in the wilderness. We read in Genesis 3 a a story about temptation. Keep that story in mind as we read the story again in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now pay attention to verse 3 in this story. It's the serpent's words to Jesus. Not the serpent, the tempter in the story of the devil. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God. Let me stop right there. What's the serpent trying to do? Same thing that the serpent tried to do in in the story in Genesis 3. These are the same characters we're talking about, right? The devil's trying to make Jesus question his identity. If you are the Son of God. And any time you feel a temptation and you feel like your identity is in question and someone promises you your identity will be put back together if you just engage in this, if you just attain this in some way, you're in trouble. What Jesus doesn't do is allow the tempter in this scene to be able to let him question his identity. He knows who he is. And he's able to deny this temptation. One of the books that I read this week that was really helpful was a book by a guy named Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was a scholar that taught at Yale and at Harvard. At the end of his career, he left all of that, left the academic world, and he entered into a community with some mentally disabled and mentally handicapped adults. He began to live with them, to live with them in community. An amazing story. And what he realized as he walked into this, he learned some lessons. And this story of Matthew 4, 1 through 11 came alive in a whole new way. And so in his book, In the Name of Jesus, if you want to read into this, I encourage you to pick up that book. In, in this story, in, in his book, he talks about these temptations, and he describes the temptations that Jesus faces in three ways. So the first temptation is to turn the stones into bread. And the way he describes this is this is the temptation to be relevant. The temptation to be relevant. I mean, Jesus is hungry. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days. He has these stones which do no good for him as he's hungry. But if he could turn the stones into bread, that's a whole other story, right? That's exactly what his need is. And so the, the, the tempter comes before him, the devil, and says, turn those stones into bread. It's a temptation to be relevant in this moment. And how many of you in your lives, maybe this is the temptation you're facing right now. Maybe it is that you're coming to a stage in your marriage that you're not sure if your spouse is the one that you're going to be able to commit to for the rest of your life, even though you made a covenant, that that would be the way it is. And you're wondering if there are others out there, if you could still play the game and find a younger spouse that might fulfill you in a different way. This is, these are the lies the tempter works in our lives. Let's be real and honest this morning about how this all works. We've got to be careful about this temptation to be relevant. We've got to, we've got to be careful about this desire to go back. And, and sometimes at midlife, this is what happens, is we get to that place and we want to start all over again because we see that our years are waning. And maybe the desire is, well, 
I have 10 more years in this business and it looks like all these young people are coming in. Maybe they're going to let me go so that all these young people in the business. Your question is, can I, am I still relevant? Will, will the, the job and the training that I've received, am I, I've got you know, high schoolers, maybe you're asking the question, am I still relevant to do this job? They think I'm so out. Maybe I need to do something to be more relevant with them, which probably is the wrong idea, right? This is the temptation that some of us face is a desire to be relevant. We question our identity. When we question our identity, sometimes we're tempted to be more relevant. And Jesus' response is, that's not it, Satan. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because the mouth, what the words that come from Scripture in God's mouth, there's never an irrelevance to them. Those words are always true. They always come back in new ways and connect with us. But maybe this morning, your temptation is not to be relevant. Maybe your temptation is more like the second temptation that Jesus faces. This is Matthew 4 and verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, you hear it again, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So the tempter picks up a better uh, route. He realizes, okay, I can't just do this whole relevance thing. But this is the temptation to be spectacular. I wonder in, 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 our, in our life today, how many of us are feeling this need to be spectacular? Throw yourself up off the temple. In fact, what does the devil do in this scene? He quotes Scripture at Jesus, right? And how many of us, if we're honest, have used Scripture to actually move ourselves away from the line of God because we rationalize something that Scripture says to okay something that God says wasn't okay? It's amazing how the tempter uses even Scripture to do this to, to the people. And, and, and Jesus says, well, I've got another Scripture for you, Satan. It is so vital that we have Scripture on our hearts, connected, memorized, so that in those moments the temptation comes, that we're ready with a response for the tempter that comes in our own lives. But that question of identity is there again. And the question is, would you be spectacular? Jesus, if you jump off the temple and all the angels save you, everyone's going to look around and see that you're the Messiah. Why don't you do this? It'll prove that God protects His people. It'll prove who you actually are. If you're the Son of God, this can absolutely happen. Here's Scripture. And I wonder in our lives how this happens in the same way. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip? And, and you get to that place and boy, you're in this place feeling like, man, why can't we do something spectacular for these people? Why can't something happen that would just completely alter and shape their lives? Or maybe you're just doing ministry with kids and you're thinking, man, this is not going over well. We've got to do something to get their attention. Have you ever been in these situations where we desire to be spectacular? Maybe it was Brene Brown's quote earlier about the shame of being ordinary. It says we've got to do something big if people are going to see who this God is. Sometimes we think we're doing God a favor by doing things that are spectacular. But what we see over and over again in the life of Jesus is he's not as interested in the crowds as he is in the disciples. He's trying to nurture. He's trying to grow in faith so that the church will grow in their time in a way it never would through the crowds that follow him on Palm Sunday and lay their branches down, but yell crucify him later in the week. In Matthew 6, just two chapters later, Jesus is talking to those who want to be spectacular. He's talking to the Pharisees. And you remember what he says? He says, when you pray, don't go stand on the street corners and do these spectacular things for everyone to see. No, when you pray, go into your closet and pray where you're unseen. Your Father in heaven will hear you. Or, or, or when you fast, don't go and disfigure your faces and let everyone know how hungry you are when you're doing that. 
No, fast and, and make sure you're all put together so no one even knows what you're doing. When you give, don't give in such a way that everyone knows what you're giving. Give so that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. This is the temptation we have to be spectacular, but Jesus refrained from that temptation. Perhaps we need to learn something from him today. Maybe that's where you are. But maybe it's not being relevant or spectacular. Maybe it's the third temptation that faces you right now. Let's go back to Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The third temptation that Jesus faces is the temptation to be powerful. To be powerful. To gain the influence of all the kingdoms of this world. And I have to imagine this is a temptation because think about it. Rome is overpowering the Jews at this time and Jesus knows what's ahead of the early church. The idea is if Jesus can overtake all these kingdoms, if he's in power over them, imagine what could happen. Imagine what we see in the early church is they begin to shift to places of power and it doesn't go well, does it? If Jesus can look into the future and see that when Christians are in power, we seem to not handle that all that well. So every four years, we have this thing called an election. I don't know if you've heard about it recently. And it's easy in these moments to be tempted by being powerful. That if we just had the right resources and we had the right leader in place and we could put all this together, then those with the right ends would use those means and it would go so well. And what we see over and over again is when people in power are in power, it corrupts in ways that we never imagined we would in the first place. What Jesus says when he has a chance to take control of the kingdoms of this world is that's not how this kingdom works. The kingdom's going to be served through salt and light. It's not going to be spectacular. It's not going to be the power you expect in an external way because the only way people change is not through external force or coercion. The only people change, way people change is through the Holy Spirit at work internally in their lives to turn their hearts toward God. And no amount of power can ever turn people in the direction we'd hope they'd turn in the way of Jesus. So Jesus rejects this again. It's so seductive, isn't it? Isn't, it, isn't this true in your own life? Your thought is, and, and my thought is, if I just had more power, if I had more resources, or if we, we, we could all get together as a church and just get everyone on the same page, if we could just have more power in our community, more resources, more finances, we could take this world for Jesus. And, and yet we see Jesus with this temptation before Satan and and he rejects it. And it's odd, and the disciples over and over again as he's going to the cross are saying, can we sit at your right and your left and your glory? And he's like, you've missed the picture. Not so among you. That's, that's how the Gentiles do. They lord it over them. Not so among you. Each of these temptations are routes to being heroic. And why do we seek to be heroic? Because hero- heroism is our culture's means of avoiding death. And these are three ways we try to deal with our death anxiety. And I just love the juxtaposition of Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. If you'll go back to that story. Again, Eve holding the fruit up and this picture of Jesus with these three temptations to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to, I want to just read this one more time with this in mind. Genesis 3, verse 6. I want you to imagine your own life when you're holding temptation in your hand, when you feel the sense of, I don't know how to say no to these things. What Eve's dealing with here, this is what it says. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some 
and ate it. Now it's interesting when you compare the temptations of Jesus with Eve's temptation as she's eyeing this fruit. First thing, it's good for food. Sounds a whole lot like turn those stones into bread, doesn't it? It's temptation to be relevant. Here's this thing that's in front of you that might offer you something you don't have without it. Maybe, well, it's good for food. What would be so wrong about taking it in? It's going to make me more like God is the promise the serpent gives me. The second temptation. It was pleasing to the eyes, the observation the Scripture gives. Spectacular, right? Well, it looks good. If something looks so good, how could it be so wrong? If it feels good, how could it be so wrong? It's this temptation for what's spectacular. And then the third, desirable for gaining wisdom. It's the temptation to be powerful. Wisdom is power, right? Knowledge is power. And it's fascinating to view these two in in connection with one another because these temptations are as old as the beginning of all of creation. Satan knows how to use this and work this in our lives. That when our identity is not set, if Jesus didn't know who he was, this would be a troublesome scene when it comes to us. But what Adam was unable to do, and that's break the power of this temptation, now Adam 2.0, Jesus, the new Adam, as Romans 5 says, is now able to say no in a way that Adam never could. I know we're facing a lot of temptations all the time. I think about our kids in our schools. I think about the places of work. I think about Uh, tax season coming up. I think about all the temptations out there, right? How easy it is to just kind of push some things aside here, to lose our integrity in the midst of things, to let that romance go a little farther than it should rather than shutting it down when it starts. And I think about this and I think, okay, if Jesus is the new Adam, if Jesus is able to resist these temptations, maybe there's something we can learn from him. What is it about Jesus that's so different from Adam? I know it's easy to say he's fully God. That's a help, but he's fully human as well. So I want us to look, because I think the answer to why Jesus is able to do this goes back just before the scene in Matthew chapter 4. What comes right before Matthew chapter 4? It's Matthew 3, of course. But at the end of chapter 3, it's a story about the baptism of Jesus. And after he's baptized, do you remember the words that are spoken in that scene? Let's go back to it. This is Matthew 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, pay close attention to these words. This is my Son, whom I love. With Him, I am well pleased. This is my Son, whom I love. With Him, I am well pleased. Baptism is such an important part of our journey with God for a lot of reasons. But one of the key reasons that baptism is so central It's because baptism roots our identity in where it truly is. And when we know truly who we are in Christ, it changes everything about the temptations that come our way. You remember what happens in Genesis? The tempter, the serpent's working to try to make Eve question her identity, trying to see maybe God's holding out on you about something. She thinks that maybe my identity could be secured. Maybe more fulfillment could come through this. And the same thing happens with Jesus. The tempter comes, the devil and says, if you are the Son of God, the first thing that happens when temptation comes when we're about to fall is we question who we are in Jesus Christ. Every one of us who are children of God are born in His image. If you've been baptized into His name, the same words that are spoken over Jesus are true for you this morning. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. 
pleased, if you know that deep in your spirit and in your soul, there is very little that can tempt you to think there's something else out there because God and His Word is more important than anything else that can secure our identity. Amen? So I wonder if some of us need to go back to that moment when we came out of the water. Maybe some of us, for the first time, need to consider if that's an act we need to walk through. Baptism is not a, a work that somehow secures our salvation through something we do. It's all a work of what God does on the cross. And let me tell you, this is a vital part of our work with God. And I think it's important that every one of us step through this at some point in our life journey. Because what happens in baptism is a picture of the second and third symbols. When we go into the waters of baptism, we die to our old self. We die to all those old identities and those things that told us who we are. And we're raised up to new life. And when we're raised up to new life, it's like the same scene that happens in Matthew chapter 4. You're my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You better believe that changed the way Jesus encountered the tempter in chapter 4 because he knew who he was in chapter 3. Some of you prayed a prayer years ago, and I'm so glad for the ways that that your parents have brought you up, for the ways you came to see Scripture in new ways. But I'm here to tell you, there is something about the power of this act of baptism, of of allowing ourselves to die to things and to come to new life that I would love for you to be able to experience yourself. So if this isn't something you've done yet, I'd love to, to talk with you more about that. I know our prayer leaders would love to engage you after our service this morning. Let's, let's do it today. Some of you, you need to take that step. But for others of us, we need to be reminded of the identity that we found when we walked out of the waters of baptism. Because it's easy for the tempter to use this whole identity thing to push us in directions. And one of the ministries that is truly blessing our church over the last six months to eight months is the ministry called Celebrate Recovery. In fact, this morning I want to show you a video from one of the guys, uh, Mark Immel, who's been a part of that. Uh, So if we'll roll that video right now, this will give you a a view of the heart of Celebrate Recovery. I'm glad to have an opportunity to share my experience about uh, Celebrate Recovery. Well, I saw it uh, as an opportunity to, to serve here at church, to become more involved with the body itself. I saw Celebrate Recovery as an outreach to our community. I saw Celebrate Recovery, too, as an outreach to our church itself. It's been more than I ever imagined. Um, Just going from the one-day seminar, when I first learned about it, and then reading some books on it, online materials, and now that it's here, it has been a great outreach. Um, I've met many new people that do not go to our church, and uh, getting to know them and seeing God work in their life, And, and of course, people here at our own church that are coming. Besides just participating, as a helper, if you will, I am a participant in the program, and I love it. Um, Celebrate Recovery is just a huge blessing. It, uh, it's a weekly meeting. It allows you to come together to, uh, to share life. It gives you a great time of worship, a uh, time you can spend with God, and uh, sing great praises. I like that. Um, their testimonies and their teachings that go on the testimonies are very powerful. They show um, how God can take lives that, <clears throat> for the most part, look ruined. And uh, He turns them around for His glory. <laughs> Celebrate recovery for me personally. Um, it's helped me with my struggles. We all have struggles. We all have baggage. Um, we might think of Celebrate Recovery, a 12-step program for people with addictions. 
We all have addictions in one way or another. We're addicted to our anger, our pride, our worry, you name it. And if it's not an addiction, it's a struggle. And my struggles are past family relationships. I struggle with procrastination, getting things done, and uh, letting go a lot of times, and letting God. So celebrate recovery has really encouraged me. And it's powerful. It, it gives me, I guess, renews my hope each week. It's truly a time. It's a time set aside to spend with God. A time set aside to spend with other people and sharing life, sharing struggles. Um, it's a blessing to me. It's very encouraging. Uh, it's, it's something I look forward to every week. The ministry of Celebrate Recovery is a ministry that's impacting lives. I've met people here on Sunday morning who've come through Celebrate Recovery and are finding healing and are seeing this as a church where they can bring their baggage and be honest about their lives and, and find healing from whatever it might be that's going on. Uh, this is a ministry that's changed my life. It's a ministry we did a series on uh, last fall that was all about baggage and the things we bring. But I want to encourage you, if you've not been to Celebrate Recovery, I want to encourage you this coming Wednesday night to consider if you'd go at 7 o'clock be a time of worship for about an hour with a testimony and an opportunity if you want to follow up with a, a group after. There's a chance for that too. But, but if you've not been yet, and if you have, and this would be a great night to come back, we'd love to pack the room uh, this Wednesday night to encourage that ministry. And I think what you'll find is uh, you're drawn into that community. And it may be the things that have been hard to speak and say in other rooms, you may find it's a lot easier to say uh, in that room. So you'll notice some people with blue shirts on around the room that have been serving in that ministry. You can ask questions about. There's a, a booth up here that can give you more information. Uh, but I want to just encourage you this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock to come up to the building to be a part of this. Um, because some of us need to take that step of baptism, but some of us need to be reminded of the words that God spoke over Jesus in Matthew 4. That's what CR does. Right? Admits that where we're at is not where we need to be. Admits that our identity is not where it should be. And then to be told over and over again. Your identity's in Jesus Christ. You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. You're my daughter whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. This is the word that we need to speak over one another again and again and again. Parents, say these words over your kids. Some of your kids, some of you in this crowd, for years have been longing for a parent, a father, a mother, who would say those words that you're enough on your own. You have everything that, I'm so proud of all that you've accomplished and who you are as a person some of us have longed to hear those words, and our parents could never utter them in the ways we needed them. This morning, I want you to hear Matthew 4 in a whole new way over each and every one of you. If your physical father couldn't say that or mother couldn't say that, you have a heavenly father who has spoken those words over you. And this is the truth. And this is what changes temptation. And this is what changes when we know who we are in Jesus Christ. It's amazing how much fear just moves away. It's amazing how much confidence we have in Him. It doesn't mean that everything goes perfect in our lives, but it means when those troubles come, we have a community of people who remind us of that on a regular basis. The church, you're enough. You're created in the image of God, and it's not you working through yourself that makes you acceptable before God. It's the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that's made you acceptable. With that confidence, there's nothing that we need to fear. Let's pray as we close our time this morning. God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the ways that a story written thousands of years ago still is so true in our lives today. 
And God, for those who are facing temptations and they've given up on the fight because it seems like those temptations are more powerful than anything else they've ever experienced, I pray this week, in this moment, that they would experience a power that is far beyond the power of the evil one. God, we trust your Holy Spirit still does miracles today. And God, I pray that you would fill us with a hope that some of us have not had for a long time. God, for those who feel like they're living lives of darkness right now, would you bring your light? For those this morning that feel hopeless, as if nothing can change the state they're in, God, I pray that your grace would remind them of who they are. God, I pray that all of us, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, that we would hear the words that you spoke over Jesus that are still true of us today, that you love us, that you're well pleased with us. God, that changes everything, and we're grateful that you proved that love through sending your son Jesus to die on our behalf. We look forward in just a few weeks to celebrating the resurrection, but right now in the midst of this conversation about the cross, God, we give thanks for this. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, Amen.